Welcome to Harvest Mission Community Church. You are listening to one of our sermons. Well, today, uh, as I mentioned, we're going to finish off the book of Ruth. And the sermon series called Steadfast. Uh, a lot of it is for us to remain steadfast, but more than anything else, uh, my hope and prayer is that you've actually got a glimpse of the steadfastness of God and who He is, that He's immovable, that He will always be constant in everything that He does, and He does it out of His character and who He is. And for those of us who maybe just recently joined us, maybe you weren't able to be a part of all the seven parts that we, uh, or six parts we have gone through so far, but we learned so much about God and His character. And instead of just reviewing all the little things that have happened, I just want to have us pull away a little bit and think about the character of God and some of the things that we were able to talk about, some of the things that God spoke to you about. Uh, we learned that God is sovereign and that He's all-powerful and He's bringing everything together. And he, and some, something that we have to remind ourselves is that it's not us trying so hard, but God is moving circumstances. He's moving us. He's moving other people around us so that through that power of God that we can experience that God loves us, He's for us and not against us. We also learn that God is all-knowing and all-wise. There are so many different ways in which He uses mysterious things. And He works in mysterious ways that we cannot fathom in our human and limited finite mind. And that's why we have to trust that God knows what He's doing more than what we can figure out on our own. In, in, in some sense, it's a sign of maturity where you confess that you don't know everything. We're not God. But He is and He does know everything. So we're going to trust in Him in that. So we talked about God being all-wise and all-knowing. We also learned that God is uh, providential, that He is a God of providence, that He provides in different ways. He uses circumstances to work in the lives of His people. He's not this God that just kind of leaves us alone, but He's bringing different different things our way, providing for us the things that we need at the right moment, at the right time, so that we can give Him praise and glory. And then we also learn that God is good, that He does all that He does because He's good in His nature. That's who He is, the goodness of God. And I want to talk a little bit about that as we close out this book. So this is why I believe we can remain steadfast is because God is steadfast. It's not about us being steadfast and therefore God's going to show us these things about us. But because who He is in His revelation through His Son Jesus Christ and in His immovable, unchanging ways that we ourselves can be steadfast as we trust in Him. In fact, it also helps us to give a glimpse of His heart about His compassion and His love for us and what He's trying to do in our lives. And so as we close out this book today, I want to have us think about this question. I'm just wondering, when was the last time you actually had to face something that was either just very daunting or maybe even frightening for you and you caused a lot of sense of a, a sense of being overwhelmed in your life? I want you to think about this for a moment because when we think about those times, uh, it creates a lot of different emotions within us. And I, I know for myself, sometimes when I'm facing some of these situations, 
that are beyond my own wisdom, my own power and what I'm able to do, my own talents, whatever it may be. Sometimes I wonder, God, are you are you really for me or are you just kind of like leaving me by myself? There are other times where I wonder, God, can you really do it in your power? What I read in the Bible and what you have mentioned over and over again, and I see that you work as I read the Bible, but can you do that? in our days, in this generation. So these are some of the things that come through my mind. There's a a girl, her name is Angelica Hale. And back when she was five years old, uh, back in 2012, uh, she nearly passed away. She ended up getting an affection in her blood, just in her body. And it began to erode her body completely to the point where her kidney uh, collapsed. And so she was in desperate need of a kidney transplant. And eventually they found out that the mother was a perfect match, a near perfect match. So she ended up going to surgery and by God's grace that she actually lived. And right after she came out of the surgery, one of the things that she really wanted to do was her passion, which was singing. And so that was something that she did. And I wanted to show you this video of when she was six years old, so almost a year after the surgery, about six years old. And, and as you watch this, I want, I want you to see what happens at the beginning and then what happens at the end. Now, this is a song that if you have cousins or nephews or uh, anybody who's smaller than you, like around this big, they all know the song. It's about snow. And all this other stuff. Everybody knows the song. So she's singing the song. Those of you who are still confused, it's okay. Don't worry. As soon as you hear the, the tune, you'll know. Uh, but one of the things that she began to experience was that she, because of her passion for singing, she auditioned for this group called Broadway's Dreams. So people who want to go on Broadway and use their passion for singing. And so she was part of that, and she was doing her rendition of it. But something happens in the beginning. And I just want us to watch it, and don't forget the end, because that's very important. So what happens in the beginning, and what happens in the end, and if you don't like that song, go to sleep in between, all right? So let's watch this together. Isn't it amazing? Just being able to have her father come to reassure her. Even in that moment of feeling daunted because of stage fright and just having his presence there uh, released her to be able to do what she's called to do. And it was a complete change from, I can't do it, to now she's flicking her hair. And I don't know if you saw that last scene where she kind of gave that little wink. I'm like, she's uh, showboating now. She's uh, really getting into it. I share this video because I think if we just picture ourselves in that moment that we're facing some of those difficult times and we just don't know what decision to make, we don't know what's going to happen next, there's a sense of anxiety and stress that comes over us to the point where it might even paralyze us from being able to do anything. Uh, Some of us might even go through emotional issues and even signs of depression. And as we face these things, like how often 
are we reminded that God is right there with us, encouraging us, letting us know that He's for us and not against us, that He's always been with us, that He's working out all things for the good, for those of us who will trust Him and love Him and believe that everything that He does, it is good. Maybe we could all see it right at this moment, but when we look back, and how many times have we experienced that when we look back, we realize that it was hard at that moment, but it was good for us. It helped us to love God more. It helped us to let go and surrender of some of those things that put us in bondage. It helped us to be able to see things with more clarity, to realize that we're living for something that's more eternal rather than something that's just temporal here on this earth. I think it's sometimes so hard to be grateful and to praise God for all that He's doing and all that He's working in our lives because all we do see is right in front of us. But this is why I want to encourage us, if we're able to see the goodness of God and to see that He is doing things in your life right now, even though you don't, it doesn't make sense at all to fully trust in Him, that's when you start to trust in this God who is faithfully writing your story so that it will bring glory and honor to him and him alone. I like what Thomas Merton said in his book, Thoughts in Solitude. He writes this, To be grateful is to recognize the love of God in everything he has given us. And he has given us everything. Every breath we draw is a gift of his love. Every moment of existence is a grace, for it brings with it immense graces from him. Gratitude, therefore, takes nothing for granted. It's never unresponsive. It's constantly awakening to new wonder and to praise of the goodness of God. For the grateful person knows that God is good, not by hearsay, but by experience. And that is what makes all the difference. End quote. What a great reminder. It's how you look at the goodness of God and who He is. That oftentimes when you go through things, you realize because He is good, He's going to bring something greater out of this. And therefore I can trust Him and believe that He will do that. And that's when praises and gratefulness and just this thankfulness and gratitude comes out of our lives because we know that He's still fully in control. So today as we close out this book, uh, I want to really challenge some of us who are going through some of these things in our lives. And I know it doesn't make sense, but one thing that I do know is that if we don't really look to Him, it's going to make you cynical, and also it's going to make you very despondent, and you're going to turn away from God. And I want to just encourage us, some of you are right there at that crossroad, and I want you to, I want to encourage you to look beyond that and trust in the goodness of God. So let me give us the one thing that I want you to remember as you walk out of this place. The one thing is simply this. The faithful God of history is faithfully writing our story. That the faithful God of history is faithfully writing our story. And we need to believe that. So in order for us to trust and to believe that this faithful God of history is writing our own personal stories and He's doing things in our lives, uh, there's two things that I want us to remember. The first thing is this, we have to remember the joy of God's goodness. The joy of God's goodness. I'm going to go ahead and read verse 13 all the way to verse 17. And as we read this portion of scripture, I want to just 
pull out some things as we talk about just this joy of God's goodness. And so in verse 13 in chapter 4, it says this, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said, the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Let's pause here and just kind of look at this portion, and then we'll close out with the last several verses with point number two. It's clear that there is a complete reversal of circumstances for both Naomi and Ruth. If you remember when we started off the book of Ruth, we noticed that both Naomi and Ruth experienced tremendous tragedy. Uh, not only was there a famine that caused them to leave Bethlehem, but we will see that they lost their loved ones. They lost their husbands. They lost, for Naomi, it was her son. And so in the midst of all this tragedy, that's how the book opened up. I don't know about you, but that's like real stuff. If you were to make a movie or to write a book, to start off with something that is tragic right up front, you have to start wondering, like, where was God in the midst of all this? Why did this happen to this family? What is going on? But now, with the conclusion of the story, we see God's faithfulness and His goodness towards His people. It's a complete reversal of how the story started back in chapter 1. So let me give us a couple aspects of God's goodness that will bring joy to our hearts. And you need to understand this when it comes to the goodness of God. The first thing is this, that God's goodness is unchanging. Come on, let's say that together. God's goodness is unchanging. In verse 13, we see that Boaz finally took Ruth to be his wife. And from last week's sermon, we learned that the kinsman redeemer, who was supposed to be the first person to have the right to redeem this family, he decided not to because it was too costly for him. And so here is Boaz, which then allowed him to be fulfilling, allowed him to fulfill his commitment to Ruth, to say that if he doesn't become the kinsman redeemer, then I will. So he fulfilled that promise, a man of his word. And they consummated their marriage by having sexual relations. Some of you guys think that, wow, this Bible so boring. There's a lot of good stuff in here, right? And uh, he went into her, or a different translation, they had the sexual relations, and then God allowed Ruth to conceive, and then she gave birth to a son. Why is this important? Because if you remember from chapter 1, she was married, but the, her, Ruth's husband passed away, so she had no child. So now, a kinsman redeemer comes in the form of Boaz, a great person from what we read in chapter 3, chapter 2, chapter 3, and even in chapter 4. And we see here now they have a child. We see the display of God's goodness. And it was a complete turnaround from what Ruth experienced in the beginning. 
Then in verse 14, it seems as if the focus shifted away from Ruth and Boaz. And now it's focused on Naomi. Now the question is why? Because if this book is called the book of Ruth, and it was Boaz and Ruth that got married, shouldn't we be focusing on them? But it's interesting that after they mentioned that they had sexual relations, they consummated the marriage, they had a child, then all of a sudden, the shift is back on Naomi. And it's probably because if you remember at the end of chapter 1, that Naomi came back to Jerusalem. And do you remember what she said? Don't call me Naomi, but call me what? Mara, bitter. And then you will also notice that she explains why you should call me bitter. Because we left here full, but then we came back what? Empty. And I believe that God wanted to remind Naomi that his goodness is unchanging. So often when we are going through great things or God is providing for us in so many different ways, oh, God is good. But is God good when you still don't have a job? We're praying for you. Is he still good when after a relationship that didn't work out, but now you're wondering, am I ever going to get married? Is he still good maybe if you've lost a loved one recently? Is he still good as you're experiencing some of the th things you're going through right now in your life? For Naomi, her view was, I left full, I came back empty. Call me bitter. She was focused on her circumstances, but God's goodness did not change. It was unchanging all the way through. I think this is the reason why we see the women of Bethlehem who witnessed Naomi's bitterness are now praising God for what God is doing. And I think this is the beauty of one constant in this whole storyline in the book of Ruth is that the goodness of God is unchanging. So regardless of the circumstance and what Ruth and Naomi was going through, God stayed constant in showing his goodness to them from the beginning to the middle, even though it was hard in the middle, but even at the end. How's this faithful God who's the God of history, how is he faithfully writing your story right at this moment? Not only God's goodness is unchanging, what we'll notice as we talk about the joy of God's goodness is that God's goodness is undeserving. In verse 15, we see that the women of Bethlehem declare that this is a gift from God of having a child. And this child is going to pour out blessings to Naomi and to the family. You know, there are things that they stated which reveals a lot of the undeserving goodness of God. Listen, if you quickly look back, you will notice that they said this child will be a restorer of life. And then take care of Naomi in her old age. And it says Ruth, who loved Naomi, was worth more than seven sons. Now some of you are like, what does that mean, seven sons? Uh, in the Jewish family, uh, symbolically, if you were able to have seven sons, like you hit the jackpot. That's like blessing upon blessing. 
And so if some people, you know, had a son and another son and a daughter, they're like, keep on going, you know, and probably the wife is like, no more. But, you know, they're, they're, they keep on going. Seven sons. It was more of a symbolic thing that it's like a perfect number. It is, you are blessed if you have seven sons. Huh. Thank God we live in the 21st century, right? <laughs> and what they're saying is, Naomi, you're truly blessed. You have a daughter-in-law who loves you, who actually followed you back. She obeys you. She listens to you. Look at God. He, he gave you a son. You have a kinsman redeemer. Now your family line can continue on. The property can stay within your home. And the thing is that we often forget just how undeserving we are when we experience anything good. That's from God. I think there are many people in the church today who somehow believe that because I'm a Christian, like I deserve all these things. I think this is the reason why so many of us get disillusioned or disappointed and just completely to a point where we're just like, you know what? I'm, I just don't care anymore. Because you somehow believe that God owes you something. And I want to just encourage us that God owes us nothing. And I think this is the reason why so many people have a complete different view of God from what we see in Scripture. Because we've been brought up in this prosperity kind of mindset that if you're good, that God will do this for you. If you read the Bible or if you pray, that God will do this for you. You could fast and serve and give to the church and do all these things, but God owes us nothing this is why our relationship with god is so transactional if i do this god you're going to give me this and no longer is it an intimate walk with the savior who loves us who wants this personal relationship but he now becomes someone who's just like a sugar daddy and i find this always interesting and as you get older you get married and have kids I was just thinking, what if my kids go like, dad, just give me money. Or they do certain chores because they want something from you. Or if you have men, if you have a daughter, game over. So like, daddy, you're like, oh, okay, whatever you want, you know. Stay strong, stay strong, brothers. But what if... You're being manipulated. No one wants that. Not even in a girlfriend, boyfriend relationship or a marriage relationship. You don't want it transactional. You don't want it. You don't want to be manipulated. But everything that we do, we want it to be an overflow of our love for that person and that person's love for us. And so here is Naomi who's realizing I didn't deserve any of this. God, you have been good. And then in verse 16, Naomi became the nurse for Ruth's child. It's kind of interesting how they kind of raised family together. And the women of the neighborhood gave the baby the name Obed, which simply means in the Hebrew language, it means a worshiper or a servant, someone who's ministering. All these things that Ruth and Naomi experienced were undeserving. 
especially for Naomi, because if you remember, as I shared before, she felt so bitter at God. Like, why should God bless her, especially with that kind of attitude? But once again, God's goodness is undeserving and unchanging. Even though they were not deserving of God's goodness, God blessed them anyway. That's why I love what A.W. Tozer said in his devotional book, Mornings with Tozer. He writes this, The goodness of God is infinitely more wonderful than we will ever be able to comprehend. Can I get a good amen to that? Like whatever our little minds can comprehend, that's about it. Like his greatness and his goodness is so big that depending on how big your brain is, that's how much you could comprehend. But that's the fullness of it. But to think that it's just a little bit, but he's so good, but just that's a little bit of who he is in his goodness. That should cause us to worship him and to love him. Isn't it amazing that the, the story of Ruth concludes in this way? Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. There's so much drama, we tension, we didn't know what was going to happen. And here's God wonderfully working in Ruth's life because she trusted in a steadfast God. I think Ruth's all-in resolve, like where you go, I will go. Where you die, I will die. Your God will be my God. That resolute, all-in attitude had some incredible consequences beyond anything that she would have ever imagined. Not only does she give someone like, God gives someone like Boaz, but now they're able to have a son who will be able to then pass on the generation. All these things. And I believe that this is how God works in our lives. Because of His goodness. If you remember what Jesus said to His followers, as he gave this promise. Because following Jesus is not easy. It's hard. Trying to be a witness at the workplace. Trying to be a witness to your family members. Trying to obey some of these commands that are not easy, especially through human strength. You need God's power to help you to obey and to live for him. In Mark chapter 10, verse 29 through 30 in the NIV, listen to what it says. This is Jesus speaking. He goes, I tell you the truth, Jesus replied. No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields and with them persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Let me read it from the message translation so that you can get it from a different angle. And read the highlighted yellow with me. Listen to what it says. Jesus said, mark my words. No one who sacrifices houses or house, brothers, sisters, mother, father, children, land, whatever, because of me and the message will lose out. Will lose out. They will never lose out. They will get it all back, but multiply many times on homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and land but also in troubles, and then the bonus of eternal life. Now, this doesn't mean if you surrender all these things, you're going to get this back multiplied. But what Jesus is trying to emphasize is that this earth is so temporal that as you surrender these things, because eternity, the eternal life is the goal, 
to be able to worship him eternally as you spend the rest of eternity with him. That all these things that we've had, that we surrendered, it will not mean as much. And if he does happen to bless us here on this earth, then we know that it's not something that we deserve. And it's not a transactional thing, but it's God in his prerogative, in his love for us, he will do what he wants to do. That's why I think there's joy in experiencing God's goodness because we realize that we're undeserving and undeserving of this unchanging goodness of God. I think every single day you will have opportunities to recognize and acknowledge the goodness of God. Uh, I was encouraged as I've been trying to talk with different people in our church. Uh, many of them were kind of losing hope kind of wavering in their faith because things were very hard. And I've been challenging people, hey, do something that I I feel like it's going to really help you because I know it helped me over the years. I said, just keep a little journal or just keep it on one of your notes that you take on your phone. And every single day, by the end of the day, write down three things that you're thankful or grateful for or you've experienced the goodness of God. And so this one person has been sending, sending it to me every single day and just reading it just makes me happy. Because some of these things are like really small things. And I remember doing it myself and some of them, it's, if you just shared it with anyone, they're like, who cares? Like, that's stupid. Like things like, I got off the one train and crossed the platform and the other train came and the door opened. You know? Like, like, like every single day you're like, who cares? But when your eyes are focused on how is God good? How has he been good to me? In what ways am I experiencing the the grace of God in my life? That's a grace. Another grace is when you're hot in Hong Kong. Can I get a good amen to that, right? That humid, hot, like sweaty, like your backpack, your whole back is wet, hot. And you're walking on the street or on the sidewalk and all of a sudden this cool air-conditioned breeze come out of the store. Y'all know what I'm talking, you guys know what I'm talking about. To me, I'm just walking, I'm like, well, that is the goodness of God. Thank you, Jesus. And I'm just basking in his goodness for a little bit longer. Little things that we forget because we're so busy going from one place to another. Little things that we fail to acknowledge how good he has been to us. That's why St. Basil the Great, listen to what he says. He says, as it is impossible to verbally describe the sweetness of honey to one who has never tasted honey, so is the goodness of God cannot be clearly communicated by way of teaching if we ourselves are not able to penetrate into the goodness of the Lord by our own experience. What a great reminder. Can you try to describe honey to someone who never tasted it before? It's hard. It's really hard. Like some of these saints, I'm like, dude, they're up in the mountain. They have nothing else to do. So they come up with these incredible like concepts. I'm like, that's so true. How do you describe honey to somebody who've never tasted it before? In the same way, I can be up here talking about the goodness of God, but until you experience it yourself, You're not going to be fully convinced that he's good. This is the reason why I'm telling you on a given day, there are so many things that you could acknowledge this is the goodness of God. 
This is the goodness of God. I'm still living. I have breath. This is the goodness of God. When you get hurt, it's not like God loves to see you hurting. But sometimes pain is not necessarily a bad thing because it shows us that we're alive. Because there are people who cannot feel things on their fingers and they could burn their hands off. But when we touch something hot, we feel the pain. And it's a reminder that we're human. I'm just wondering where we are right now. In what ways have you experienced the goodness of God? Are you grateful for all that God is doing and working right now in your life? Do you realize that it's undeserving? And in His goodness, He's never changed. He's been constant. I'm wondering if there's joy in your life as you're deepening your knowledge and understanding of the goodness of God. So the first point, once again, is the joy of God's goodness. Let me close with the second point. The second point is this. Not only the joy of God's goodness, but I want to talk about the journey of God's grace. I want to talk about the uh, journey of God's grace. I'm going to read the last portion, and as we close out the book here, in the book of Ruth, and it just seems like a bunch of things. But there's some significance in this as we talk about this journey of grace. So this is the genealogy of David. And listen to what it says. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez, father Hezron. Hezron, father Ram. Ram, father Abinadad. Abinadad, father Hashan. Hash, Nashan, uh, father Salam, Salam, father Boaz, Boaz, father Obed, Obed, father Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Like, come on, let's be honest. You know these sections, we, 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 you know, we just skip over, right? The book of Numbers, the book of Numbers, Leviticus, you're like, oh, okay, great. I'm ready to do my soap. But you got to pause a little bit and say, what's the significance of all these names? Earlier in verse 17, we notice that Obed became the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. That's verse 17. Now in verse 18 through 21, we see that there's a mention of David's genealogy. Now, one thing that you need to note is this. There are 10 generations that are mentioned from Perez all the way to David. Now, if you don't know this, which I didn't know until I had to do my own study on this. If you don't know this, it just seemed like, oh, there must have been only 10 generations. But if you look at other portions of Scripture that gives you a list of a family line, especially in First Chronicles, you'll realize that there's more than 10 generations in this family line. So the question once again is this, then why mention these people? Now, overall, it brings this sense of closure to the book of Ruth. When we started off the book of Ruth, once again, we remember it started off with a famine. There were some deaths, some ne other negative things that happened. But now at the end of the book, it is now more forward-looking and there's a sense of hope. You need to understand this. 
Because out of this genealogy comes forth Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. And this is how the writer of Ruth decides to end this book. But what does this genealogy of David show us and why is it important? This is the question we need to ask or have answered. What does this genealogy of David show us and why is it important? And let me propose to us a couple of reasons. It is important because it highlights several things as we talk about this journey of God's grace. The first thing is this, that God uses impossible predicaments for His glory. What do I mean by that? The journey of God's grace is revealed when we think about Ruth and her background which is from the Moabs or the Moabites. And if you know anything, and I, I, I shared this in the beginning of this sermon series, that the Moab, the Moabites were enemies of Israel. So you have to understand, if you could look at it through this lens, like here's God, the writer of history. He's writing stories in our lives, in so many people's lives. And in this story where it's a genealogy of where Jesus Christ will come from, we see this woman called Ruth who is a Moabite. Like this is an impossible predicament where you say, how in the world can Jesus Christ, the Son of God, come from a genealogy from a woman who is a Moabite that were enemies of Israel? A non-Jewish person playing a significant role in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And this is the part that I want us to understand, that God is always working to show us that there is nothing impossible for God. Can I get a good amen to that? God is always working to show us that there is nothing impossible for Him. It doesn't matter what predicament, what situation, what circumstance that you are in your life, what problems that you're facing right now, that God is constantly working to use these impossible predicaments and situations for His glory. And He loves doing that. Because when everyone says there's no way, God always makes a way. Huh. He's a way maker. Okay, we won't sing that song. When there's no way, He makes a way. Rivers in the desert, the book of Isaiah talks about. He does things that just doesn't seem possible. There's no way. And I love that He does that because it all leaves us in awe. It all leaves us flabbergasted. It all leaves us kind of like, whoa. It gives us a greater sense of worship, a greater sense of just humility, realizing that I'm not God, but He is. And He's awesome. And He could do all these things. And I can't. And so I need Him. I want to depend on Him and trust in Him. So God loves using impossible predicaments for His glory. Because only God can do it. That's why in Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 17, in the NIV, 
The prophet Jeremiah says, Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Come on, say this together. Nothing is too hard for you. Nothing. In Mark chapter 10, verse 27, in the Living Bible, it says this, Jesus looked at them intently and said, Without God, it is utterly impossible, but with God, everything is possible. Some of you might be experiencing an impossible predicament right now. My question is, do you trust in God? By His grace, I believe that He can use your situation for His glory. The second thing that we notice here, God not only uses insignificant or impossible uh, predicaments, but God uses imperfect people for His glory. That God uses imperfect people for His glory. When you think about David, it's so easy to remember all the victories that he had in war. Things that he'd gone through. But I think for many of us, we remember the mistake that he made when he committed adultery with Bathsheba. And it's in that moment that it could have been a defining moment for David and said, you know what? Forever now, this is who you are. And you just kind of sit on the sideline. But that's not God. What we see is not only did he commit adultery, but he actually planned out a murder by sending Uriah, which is the husband of Bathsheba, into the front lines where there was a lot of fighting, knowing that he might possibly be killed. He was an accomplice to this murder. So not only was he an adulterer, but he was a murderer. And this is when we hear this heartfelt prayer in Psalm 51, when he cried out to God and said, Create in me a clean heart, O God and renew a right spirit within me. Such an imperfect person who's part of this genealogy where Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, would be born. You think about also Perez. Some of you are like, who is Perez? In Genesis chapter 38, you notice that Perez was a son of Judah and Tamar. So, Perez was the son of this mom and dad. But those of you who don't know the Jewish history, you realize the way they became intimate to have Perez is one of those stories that you tell late at night. Yes. Why is it important? Because Tamar was the daughter-in-law of Judah. So Judah had a son, and the son married Tamar. And then what happened was when the son passed away, she actually disguised herself as a prostitute, which he did not know. He slept with her. And they ended up having a son named Perez. Why would a person who was born in this way be part of this genealogy of Jesus Christ. An imperfect person. You see the mention of Salam here, who was a father of Boaz. But do you know who the mother was? Do you know who the mother of Boaz was? Do you know who Salam was married to? Well, for this, you need to go into another genealogy. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 5 in the NIV, 
and please read the highlighted yellow with me and then you'll realize, ah, for those of you who been grew, up, grew up in the church, those of you who didn't, you're like, huh? Don't worry, I'll explain. It says this, Salam, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. Those of you who don't know the story, Rahab was a prostitute and she was living in Jericho. And this was the city that God was going to destroy and give to the Israelite people. But she, realizing that God, their God, the Jewish God is more powerful, she rescued or hid some of the spies, the Jewish spies who went into the land. And guess what happened? That they were saved. And she says, please remember me. Remember me. When you come to destroy this, remember me and my family. Why in the world is there a mention of Salam and also his wife Rahab, a prostitute? In the city of Jericho. Why is she in the genealogy of Jesus Christ? So if you think about this for a moment. You realize. David's genealogy. Will eventually lead. To the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And we, what we see. Is that it is a story of God's. Lavished. Undeserved grace. That he uses imperfect people to accomplish his purpose and his will, which is for his glory. I don't know about you, but this gives me a lot of hope. Because I don't think there's a single person in this room who could claim that we're perfect. Some of you right now in this room, you've made some bad mistakes. Some of you are living with the consequences of some of those mistakes. Some of you have relationships that have been completely severed because of maybe some things that you have said, some things you have done. There are things that you're facing now, but maybe no one else knows. And you're wondering to yourself, can God forgive me of this? Maybe you're sitting there and thinking to yourself, in light of everything that has happened in my life, is there any way that God could somehow still use me? And that's exactly where Satan wants you. Isolated, by yourself, hiding. Not sharing. And you're trying so hard on your own to overcome. And that's exactly what Satan wants you to do. Because he realized that no matter how hard you try, you will never make it. So he'd rather have you on a treadmill, a spiritual treadmill, and keep on running, sweating, and not going anywhere. But this is when the grace of God, which is our story, the journey of God's grace in us. That we made mistakes along the way. We've done some stupid things along the way. We've completely pushed God out of our lives along the way. But for whatever reason, God in His grace and His mercy continues to pull us back. He continues to pursue after you. He continues to love us. Be patient with us. Showing us mercy and grace. That's why even Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, in the Passion Translation, it says this, So I'm not defeated by my weakness, but delighted. For when I feel my weakness and endure mistreatment, when I'm surrounded with troubles on every side and face persecution because of my love for Christ, I'm made yet stronger. For my weakness becomes a portal to God's 
power. What a powerful imagery. That your weakness, your mistakes, your failures, your imperfections are a portal for God's power to come, to flow out of. So when people see you, they don't see you, they see Jesus Christ in you. Amen? They see Jesus Christ in you, His power, His grace, His forgiveness. And I think this should amaze us and humble us, knowing that God can use broken people and weak people to accomplish greater things. You know, when I think about our church, I don't know if you know this or not, but this coming September, in about next two to three months, we're going to celebrate our fifth year anniversary. Amen. We've only been here for five years, almost five years. And I just think about all the baptisms that we were able to do. I think about all the people who kind of committed their lives in, in a deeper, more passionate way. People who are struggling with different issues in their lives, but they found the freedom in Christ through the gospel. Like sometimes when I think about all the people who came in more of a religious spirit, but they're gaining this gospel paradigm. They're learning how to love Jesus, not because it's a Sunday school story, but because he's a personal God of who he is. He speaks to us. He ministers to us. And then we start falling in love with him more and more. The last five years, this is what we've been doing. And when I think about it, I realize it's a journey of God's grace. Even just my family coming here with a team of people, even though we felt like we're sacrificing a lot, that was God's grace upon our lives. Some of you could have gone to other churches, but somehow you found someone in a yellow shirt. Like, why are they wearing a yellow shirt? And say, make it count. Make what count? What is this? And then you came. Maybe some of you had a co-worker or someone that you knew when you were really young. You went through grade, grade school together and you realized something's different about this person now and they invited you to come out to life group and here you are. That's a journey of God's grace. That he's, he's using these impossible predicaments and imperfect people to accomplish what he wants to accomplish in us. He's writing a story that you might not fully know right now, but he's writing it with every single up, with every single down, with every single, maybe it just seems like nothing's changing. That's all part of the story. This faithful God of history, faithfully writing your story and my story for his glory. How about us this morning? When you think about your life, do you see God's hand and his display of grace? Have you seen God use various predicaments in your life to bring glory to himself? I'm just wondering what mistakes have you made that you feel like you cannot let go of? That God's grace, in this journey of grace that He's offering to you. So the one thing, once again, is that the faithful God of history is faithfully writing our story. Can I just give some quick next steps? And when I do next steps and when Pastor Bo does next steps, it's not like you got to do these things. Like part of it is just 
things to us to think about. And if God convicts you, oh, like that might help me, then yeah, then, then please feel more welcome, more than welcome to be able to apply those things. But it's just being able to synthesize some of these things to take some next steps. Because you cannot just be a hearer of God's word. You got to be a doer of his word if you want to see change. And so that's why we do the next steps. Let me give you some next steps as I was thinking about this passage, meditating on it. And these are things that I came up with. The first thing is this, renew your mind. So many of us are so pessimistic. So many of us have such a negative view of ourselves, negative view of situations. Your mind is so warped because of what your parents told you, because of what you experienced, what Satan is speaking to you in your year lies. And you start believing in these things. That's why as soon as something happens, you're like, oh, God doesn't love me, which is completely wrong. It's false because the Bible is contrary to what you just said. But we believe it. And so the only way you're going to experience transformation is when you renew your mind. How do you renew your mind? You got to read the word of God. Start memorizing scriptures. Start allowing the truth to settle in. I always tell people, pick a phrase or even just a, just a little chunk of a scripture passage that you can say over and over again to renew your mind. The second thing is this, release the past to God. Don't, don't allow the past to define you in such a way where you cannot live in freedom. You got to be able to release it. And that doesn't mean that you might not bear the consequences because you might have to. But at least release it and say, no longer will this be a chain that pulls me back. I want to keep on moving forward. You made a mistake. You did something that you regret. You wish you could have that time back. You wish you could have that moment back. But you can't. That's life. To be able to just release it. To say, God, I'm going to trust in you. Which leads to the third thing is rest in his grace. Like, I want you to think about this. What is the most resting Restful thing you could think of. It's a rhetorical question. Some of you are trying to answer, but just think about it for a moment. Like, I don't know what it is for me when I think about the most restful uh, state or the restful times. And I, I guess maybe because when I experienced it, I was just very restful. It's when I hear the ocean waves coming in and like soft, I, I know this sounds really cheesy, but I'm just telling you this is for me. Some of you, it might get you anxious, okay? So this is me, restful. Like I hear the ocean waves coming in, and I hear jazz music, smooth jazz. I know some of you think, oh my God, that's the elevator music. Hey, it's restful for me, okay? Smooth jazz. Waves crashing in. Under a canopy. The sun shining and a drink in my hand, lemonade, and just looking out, almost what it seems like infinity. That's restful for me. So I know what that feels like. What is it for you? That's what it means to rest in His grace, to be able to say, you know what, God, it's you. I'm just going to chill here. You do your thing. I'm just going to rest here, trust in you, believe by faith. Lastly, respond to God's goodness. When you understand how good he has been to you, you have to respond. You got to be able to say, God, what is it that you want me to do? How do you want me to respond? Because once you experience God's goodness and God's grace, 
and you sit on it, it's going to rot. Do something about it in obedience to Him. Love somebody. Be generous. Be kind. Serve somebody. Get involved in the church. Get involved in your life group. Because you need to respond to His goodness. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Mission Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit our website at hongkong.hmcc.net.